Okay, we, we'll, we'll, uh, I'll call the uh, class to order. Uh, good evening, uh, history lovers, and welcome to the latest uh, History Ireland Head School. Uh, I'm your Head School Master, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland. Uh, I won't labour that point. I presume you're all subscribers and regular readers. Uh, now, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here in, in my, one of my favourite venues, because there's a bar at the end of the room. Um, <laughs> Not quite happy, the, the, the sort of Baldunican stools here, we're having some difficulty with these, but we'll manage, we'll manage. Um, now, it, it's a particular pleasure to, to, to have this head school in association with, with the Women's uh, History Association of Ireland. Uh, not the first one, we did one, was it three years ago, Mary, was it, in, in, in Collins Barracks? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, that was a fairly uh, lively, lively event. Now, the uh, topic here tonight is, uh, quote, now you see them, now you don't, unquote women in the Irish Revolution. Now, one of the features of last year's uh, 1916 commemorations was the extent to which the role of women in the national movement was acknowledged. Uh, their role intensified in the immediate aftermath of the rising, uh, particularly since hundreds of male activists were in jail. Why then were women subsequently marginalized? Did they voluntarily Turn off your mobile phones. <laughs> Did they voluntarily step back into the shadows or were they elbowed aside? So to discuss these and related matters, uh, we have uh, assembled a first-rate panel here. Mary McAuliffe, one of our uh, regular uh, head school panelists. Uh, Linda Connolly, uh, who's now of Maynooth University, by the way, not UCC. Sorry about that, Linda. Uh, and on my right here, another regular uh, head school panelist, uh, Connor McNamara. And uh, finally, Elaine uh, Sisson of IADT uh, Dunleary. Uh, now, Mary, um, I might start with you just uh, the, the, to address the initial, uh, well, rather the, the second, the second sentence in my introduction there: uh, the role of women in the immediate uh, aftermath uh, of the Rising. Uh, I mean, how prominent did they become, in fact? Well, um, of course, in the immediate aftermath of the Rising, say if we just looked in, in Dublin, but throughout the country as well, of course, is chaos and uh, sweeping arrests, um, the execution, the court marshals are happening and then the executions. Um, the public opinion is initially um, pretty much against the rising. And we Could you just remind us how many people are, are rounded up in numbers? 77 women. There was right. a about it last year. Written We've got the plug in already. <laughs> yes, very good, Mary. And, um, and initially about 1,200, 1,300 men, and then more men as the uh, weeks went by. Um, even, even, even men who weren't involved, just who might have had some association with the Irish volunteers or were presumed to be helping them, all, and all around the country as well, not just in Dublin. And to what extent did that punch a major hole organisationally in the various movements? Oh, well, they were all in complete chaos at okay. this stage. Okay, that's, that's the point yeah. you're making there. So yeah. it, it, did, it did completely on the mind the, the various yeah, organisations. Yeah, um, right. most, you know, you have all the leaders in prison, and by, um, as it went on into the weeks into May, uh, most of the leaders are being executed. And, of course, that's transforming public opinion, and there's a whole sense of nobody knowing quite what is happening. Um, martial law is, is declared... Um, the women then are released, the, the 77 women, and then the other women who had participated, all of whom had left, you know, you had upwards of 300 women involved, and then you had all the other women in Cumannamon and in the Irish Citizen Army that hadn't participated and are now the ones who are out there in, in society uh, and ready to reorganise. And the interesting thing about um, Cumannamon and about the women themselves is they don't step back. 
they don't um, stop. They're, I mean, they've been through a fairly traumatic uh, experience, those who were involved, but also the rest of them, the whole country, is in a state of, of um, as they would say down in Kerry, of chassis altogether. <laughs> um, so what they do is um, they, they have plans already. You know, Kathleen Clark had um, visited Tom the night before he was executed, and he had told her his plans and that she was to carry on um, and make sure uh, that the IRB was reorganized and the um, common Amman was reorganized. And many of the women begin reorganizing <coughs> these uh, or, um, groups, uh, getting them back together, even if the, as the men have to be on the run. So the women step into that breach. The other thing they do then is, of course, they start fundraising pretty much soon after. Clark already, Kathleen Clark already has a little nest egg that has been put aside. Uh, and then they start fundraising her through um, her organization. And then uh, eventually the, the uh, volunteers and national funds all come together. And it is mostly the women who are carrying that can in terms of fundraising, doing flag days, uh, going house to house, um, and getting the money together for the widows and orphans of the signatories who were executed, but also those families of the men who are now in camps in England and Wales and in prison and things like that. And that's a very important thing because it means the women are back in organisational mode. Right. They haven't stopped. This is um, on into uh, the, the months afterwards. And I mean, there is that famous picture or photograph that was taken of them. As, I, I think it's in the autumn because the trees look bare. But it's in the autumn of 1916 at a fundraiser uh, in um, O'Carroll Eli's house in Leeson Street. And you have about 60 or 70 of the women there, most of whom have spent time in prison. They have been through a rising. They've seen death and destruction. They've seen their friends killed or executed or wounded or who are now in prison. But they are still working for the cause. And in lots of ways, they're, they're, they're even more devoted and they're more radical hmm. in these months afterwards. Just to mention Kathleen Clark, right? I mean, when it came to the, 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 the fundraising and support for prisoners, right? It, organization, it wasn't a straightforward job because there were rival oh, organizations. And my impression is she's pretty, pretty uh, tough nut. I mean, she basically ends up subsuming the other organization to her organization, does she not? Well, you have to look at, her, at who, what, who she was herself. She was pregnant when she visited her husband for the last time, the night before he was executed. She lost that child. Uh, her brother was also executed. Um, she was a, a woman who was committed to this cause. And I think the fact that she had lost so much meant that she was not going to make that uh, not worth her while. She was committed for the rest of her life to that cause. And apparently, yes, yeah, she was a difficult character herself. You can see that when you're reading her um, Biography that she uh, she doesn't suffer fools gladly. Um, she yeah, but she gets she gets her way. I mean, she she, she prevails. Way. That's the thing. I think the only one she didn't really get her way with was Countess Markovitch and Maud Gon. That time they were in prison together, uh, where she felt very much ostracized or marginalized by them because they were talking about their high society friends and um, you know looking down at her and a little bit in that snobbish sort of way. And that's she gripes a bit about that. Um, but she and the others, they do something very effective. Besides the fundraising, which we know about, and, and they are effective at that, I think what is very important about what the women do after that is the propaganda. Mm. And the propaganda they use to construct the widows and orphans of the dead signatories mm. um, as the you know, remnants of these patriotic men. And they're what they're constructing is the ideology of the patriotic dead. 
Um, so you have uh, Mrs. Pierce, of course, the mother of Patrick and Willie Pierce, mm. um, uh, Anya Kant, and all her little children. And it's so effective and maybe effective, Gifford, Mary. But did, did it do possibly don't do a disservice though to the actual role they're playing? Well, yeah, this yeah, my is it. Point, that That's they, my point. I was going to yeah. make subsequent to that. I think actually what they then were setting up was something that was going to come back and haunt them during the treaty right. debates, uh, particularly, but on into the next few years. That th what they're doing is making the patriot male. What they're doing is seeing right. that the, uh, it is the masculine that is the important thing in the revolution, mm -hmm. uh, and the feminine is the, the helper and, and the domestic and the carer. Uh, and I think that does that does uh, undermine them later on. Conor, you want to come in on that? Yeah, I think it's a very key point that Mary is making there. What you have in the aftermath of the Rising in particular is the, the prominence of the, uh, you know, the, the grieving mother and the, the grieving widow. Obviously, Margaret Pierce, Anya Kant and others being the, the uh, apogee of that particular figure. Whilst at the same time, you have uh, this kind of uh, collusion, as Mary is trying to say, maybe too strong a word, in this genderizing of themselves almost. Whilst you have the Helena Maloney's with much more complex, much more progressive ideas, uh, remaining marginal figures. Uh, and in many ways, whilst the women fighters are praised retrospectively, um, you can see they're, within society, I would argue, they're kind of losing their femininity almost. And you see that in the modern day as well with people like Rose Dugdale and others. By, by, by being women fighters, they're actually becoming, I would say, almost less woman-like in the views of society. Mm -hmm. Whilst, uh, and they're paying a heavy personal cost, I think psychologically, emotionally particularly, that revolution is a very tough business. And for a woman, it's an extremely tough business. Mm -hmm. So if you take a figure, a pivotal figure in Galway would have been um, Julia Morrissey of Athenry. She founds Cumannamon. She brings in a coterie of women from the Athenry, Kilcolg and Clarenbridge district and in Galway town. She works tirelessly alongside Lee Mellows and develops a very close relationship. Now, Julie Morrissey spent the last 30 years of her life in an asylum in Balnasloe. Uh, when the military pensions contacted her, she wasn't capable of filling out the forms. Uh, and she is buried in a pauper's grave and we don't know where and we have no picture of her. Julie Morrissey is uh, in command of the women here in Galway in Easter week. She's a figure akin to Mellows. She's a figure that should be studied and should be examined, but we know virtually nothing about her. So for all of the familiarity we have with Margaret Pierce and others, you would have to step back and say there is an ongoing marginalization at their expense of these women and when you look at their later lives, you often find they either marry uh, male volunteers that okay. they form close bonds with. But I, I, I haven't studied it, I don't know exactly, but I suspect there's a disproportionate number of them remain single. Okay. Um, and we know obviously of some same-sex relationships and so on, that they do live lonely and difficult lives, as most ex-combatants of conflict do. Can, can I just come in there on that? I would really mm. agree with you with that. And in reading the um, uh, military pension applications, you do come across a certain number, and it's, it's not a huge number because most of them do get married and to volunteers. But of those who remain single, a lot of them, if you're reading the uh, reports, not the, their application themselves, a lot of medical problems, mm. some of them obviously psychological problems. I think, uh, and then when you look at some of them, uh, quite a number die young. Yes. Now, some of them live very uh, on in, like Nora Connolly O'Brien was still alive when the hunger strikes were on. Uh, but quite a number of them die young, unmarried, 
um, and in very straitened circumstances. And I think that marginalisation plays into that, absolutely. Yeah. They, they are given no role in the new free state because they can't get the civil service jobs <coughs> and they can't, you know, they're not valorised. Um, and and no, obviously being anti-treaty is... Uh, plays into that as well. Yeah. Now, can I, can I just bring in another uh, angle on this here uh, and bring you in, in on this, Elaine, because the 1916 rising wouldn't have happened without the, the wider crisis of imperialism uh, that, is the, that was the First World War. Now, that created uh, other both difficulties and opportunities for women. Now, you've done some work on, on women in the munitions industry, not at first glance a feminine pursuit. Well, I think one of the things that we have to acknowledge is that war has mixed fortunes for women. Mm -hmm. That um, on the one hand, the chaos that Mary is talking about, it creates uh, social trouble and it's a, it deprivation and financial hardship, but also great social mobility and paid employment for women in ways that they couldn't access before. And um, the munitions industries in Ireland are a really untold story about this part. Um, it's hard to know what the allegiances of women who worked in those factories was. Um, whether, whether it was for kind of supporting the British war effort or whether it was for economic reasons. But we can see that um, the war effort in Ireland is substantially greater than we would give credit for. And um, I think that is one of the kind of unacknowledged um, histories of this period, that we don't really think about um, the role of Ireland within imperial struggle or, or um, war effort. And if you just think about the numbers, um, for example, there were four, five national shell factories making bombs, one of them in Galway here in Earls Island, one of them in Dublin, one of them in Waterford, one of them in Cork. Um, this is notwithstanding all the other factories that are already there before this, like Kynox and Arklow. Even discounting the industrialised north, because Belfast has its own industry, we're talking <coughs> about an extensive network of industries which promote and supply armaments, munitions, um, shirts, uniforms, boots, etc., for the British Army. So, for example, in Clonmel, under the auspices of the Vincent de Paul, there are 88,000 shirts made for the British Army in 1917. So that is a huge amount of labour that we really discount. How, how, many, how many, can you put a figure on terms of numbers of women employed? Um, in terms of women, it's very difficult to know because the, there are national shell factories which come under the auspices of the Ministry of Munitions. So therefore they do count, they do count their numbers. And we know that there are, there are about 1,400 women that are working in those factories. Um, conscription in Britain has meant that there are greater numbers of women working in Britain than there are in Ireland at this time. Um, so. We have to also understand that there are the infrastructure isn't there for them to be scaled up in the way that they are in Britain. So we have at least that we can account for 2,000 women working in sort of official, official capacity. And then however many thousands of women who are ex-milliners, dressmakers, textile workers, anybody who's dexterous is, is brought in to work in these factories. And Porter Gates reckons that, um, looking at labour exchange records, 16,000 um, men and women went to to Britain from Ireland to work in munitions factories. Are they working in exclusively female environments or is it, is it mixed in terms of gender? Um, there's a little bit mixed. There's, a, there's about a third men and two thirds women and that is because conscription isn't an issue in Ireland at right. that time. Mm -hmm. So men are still allowed to work, although though if you're working for a kind of official factory, then there's a, there's a kind of a limit on how many men can actually work. So is this employment gender blind, as I might, might say? 
Will they, are they prepared to take on anybody or are they yeah, it's, it's very recruiting women in particular? It's very interesting. I mean, it's gender blind initially because they don't want to be seen to employing men because they want men to sign up. And then right. it's also class blind to a certain extent because they want kind of the philanthropic um, element of women coming in and working in the factories. And then, of course, when they realise that ladies who come in to work in the factories are actually useless at working in factories, <laughs> then they want people who are good, like who are, you know, who are like dexterous, as I said. So you do get um, a really interesting mix. And as the war effort increases, so the first um, munitions factories are kind of the ministry munitions. They start to agitate for, actively agitate for war industries in Ireland by the end of 15. And by the end of 16, you've got the beginning of them. And by 17, they're in place. And they run all the way up until 1919. And they're really quite um, important. They're probably, perhaps not as important as they are in Britain. I mean, they're not as extensive, etc. But they're a significant contributor to women's employment at this Mary, time. Mary, does this fear in the radar at all of the, of the, 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 the radical nationalist women? I mean, the fact that, that, that thousands of women are working for the British war effort? Um, well, I mean, obviously they um, have more engagement with the separation women rather than the, the, the mm. women in the Sorry, in the is, that, is that a euphemism, engagement? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes. <laughs> yes. What are um, we talking about here? Um, uh, they uh, no, I don't think so. I I, I don't. Could I just, sorry, yeah. could I just come back and say, in 1916, before the rising, there was a uh, there was a, a report that in the basement of Liberty Hall there was a munitions that people were making bombs, mm -hmm. and and there were kind of stockpiling armaments, etc. Yes, yes. But the research isn't there yet to say who were making these bombs and is it possible that they were learning their trade in the munitions factory okay. and coming in at the weekends to actually make the bombs. Okay. And I, I would love more research about that. Yes, well, actually, it was, the, it was Jenny Shanahan and Rosie Hackett. Yeah. And if you look at the witness statements in the military pension mm -hmm. files, they're telling you what they're doing. Um, and it is the Irish Citizen Army women who are doing yeah, it. Yeah, but I'm also wondering, is there, are there women who are also working in the National Shell Factories who Coming are moonlighting then as well? Doing yeah. Yeah. Doing nixers, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Shell Factory in Galway is in the stu current Student Union building in, in, in NUI. And they have a picture on, on the wall. They also have a picture of the British Army Lancers Regiment that tortured, murdered, and shot dead uh, a number of former students for some reason up there in the bar for, uh, for a bit of, uh, I don't Let's know, go down there straight away. authenticity. But uh, yeah, there was about 100 women. Working, the factory, Shell Factory comes late enough in uh, November, winter of 1917. And so obviously has about a year or more. Uh, there's about 100 women working there, and by urban folklore, they tend to be the sweethearts and sisters of mm. men at the mm -hmm. front. Uh, for coming among the small coterie of women in Galway, um, there's always the threat of violence on the streets of Galway mm. for Republican women from tough... Uh, I think we can uh, cliché uh, separation women. There are a whole range of women in complex, uh, different social backgrounds, but... Uh, the threat of getting a beating um, mm. for a Republican woman on the streets of Galway from shell factory workers, from uh, soldiers serving at the front's families is an ever-present danger. So there are a group of tough, hardy women here in the town that are, are getting employment. Linda, you want to come in? Um, yeah, I was just going to say the Irish Medical Organisation are having their conference in the Radisson Hotel. I was tempted to organise um, a few uh, shells, considering <laughs> I'm still getting over the shock of staying in the same hotel as them. Um, yeah, I just want to go back to one point, um, just on the marriage question. I, I think context is very important, and you know, I think it would be interesting to look at that group. You know, did a larger percentage marry, marry or not? But we have to remember the 1920s, the 1930s. <coughs> was a very hostile period for women in general. Um, and also, the, the social historians among us here, um, John, will point out 
Sarah Ann, that in the 20s and the 30s, you know, Ireland had the highest rates of, of never married. So about a quarter of the female population and a third of the male yeah. population yeah. never married, so to speak. So I think we have to be a little bit careful around um, context they as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So we tend to read yeah. the rising through the lens of what happened in those particular weeks. But there's a broader question, mm. I think, around when we are talking about the social composition of the group. I also think in the witness statements, um, certainly the trawling I've done, there's an awful lot more there, I think, around all these questions uh, that we're looking at. I've been looking at particular violence against women. There's a huge amount. It might be hidden. It might be buried in someone else's witness statement. But there are clues. You have to spend an awful lot of time reading them. But there might be something in there. Sorry, I just wanted to make that point. Tell you, I, there's something I want to just bring in here before we move on to the rest of this discussion, what I, what I introduced. That's just on how the role of women was commemorated last year during the commemorations. Yeah. And, and by the way, um, you, you, the audience there, you might just collect your own thoughts on this. You are expected to do a bit of work here. This is a school. <laughs> so, Sarah, do you want to just get the, the radio mic, just in case somebody wants to jump in? No, I, I, the question I want to throw out is, because um, I, I said in my introduction, one of the features of last year's commemorations was the extent to which the role of women was acknowledged. Uh, is that true? Um. Are, are we all con congratulating ourselves about this? <laughs> well, is this actually the case? Well, in terms Tommy of had told me yeah. he was going to ask me that question, actually. Um, so um, I, I, I think we have, I suppose I would, again, we have to, partly this relates to the way in which we define history or we approach history, I think. And commemoration can be defined in different ways as well. So for me, much of the commemoration as aligned with, let's say, professional history, was very much associated with the state and the celebration um, of the foundation of the state as is. Um, many of us, particularly in women's history, or women's history broadly defined, are perhaps more interested in power and are attracted to the domain of women's history because it critiques power um, from the perspective of the performance of the state rather than looking at the state as something to be commemorated. Uh, to me, per personally, uh, the discourse wasn't critical enough. And I think if we look at even events this week, if we look at you know the recent controversies about tomb, etc., all of these, the whole mother and baby homes, etc., they all go back to the 1920s. They didn't happen in 1916, but they're very much of mm. a product of that period of the emergence of the state and the modernisation of the state. So the commemoration itself was very successful. I think it had a broad, I suppose, collective impulse, it brought people together, it got them talking about history, uh, but in another way there wasn't enough discussion of what I would call historical accountability, Hist historical critique of the performance of the state and society, particularly in relation to women's rights. So I would be very critical from that perspective. I would also be very critical, I suppose, of the way in which uh, women, is that mine? Sorry, mm. women were, um, <coughs> to what extent women were fully included in the official uh, commemoration. And again, we could talk about the discipline of history. We could also talk about the general events. Um, I think it has reminded us to be vigilant. Um, some of the early events, uh, <coughs> women's historians, feminist historians, in fact, specifically, had to speak out against uh, the exclusion of not just women's history, but women's historians of a variety of types, not just women's historians who work in women's history, um, from some of the early events. Um, there were a couple of examples. Uh, where women quite simply weren't included. So, um, so I think as the year went on, it got a bit better, but it has reminded those of us who are not just engaging in scholarship for its own sake, that we actually, at moments of commemoration, it's very important to be involved in defining the process of commemoration. And I think that's what we need to remember when we get to 2018, when 100 years of suffrage 
um, is commemorated, yeah. that the, we are 100% involved in that commemoration and that it is done in a way which is critical and about accountability and women's rights. Mary. Well, yep. <laughs> I, would, I would totally agree with everything Linda has said there and, and certainly um, and in the beginning of the year it seemed like yes um, uh, the state was going to commemorate in its particular way and we have to be much more critical about that and I think some people were trying to force that critique but um, it, it, there was a lot of resistance to that but also the, there were, I think for me there were two things about uh, last year. One was fantastic, it was great that going around giving talks all around the country, people were fascinated about the story of what women did in 1916 and, and how, how they contributed and coming on in the Irish Citizen Army and all that sort of thing. And women's history, history books about the women of 1916 mm. were among the better sellers of uh, last year. And, and it showed there is a hunger out there, there is a questioning out there about the women's role in they're not just they're not displayed though. They're not displayed properly. In the yes, bookshops. That's yes, that's another. I mean, you're battling against so many layers of continuing marginalization. Um, in terms of official commemorations by the universities and by the state, women historians had to force their way onto the platform in many, many cases. And that was a difficult thing because, of course, as you were trying to argue the case about being included, um, not pers personally, but that about having women's uh, historians who've been writing about this for the, f since you know the 1980s, uh, with with Margaret Ward's seminal book on unmanageable revolutionaries, and all the way up. Um, what you found was that, sorry guys, male historians were now talking about the women, or were being the ones who were talking about the women, and then women historians who've been doing all this work were being uh, excluded. Um, and then when, you, when the discussions around this happened, there were um, negotiations. Well, can I say, Mary, that's a bit unfair though, right? Because I mean, it means no, that no, the male historians no. are damned if they do, damned if they don't, no? No, no, seriously, no. No, no, see? No, no, I'm, I'm, no, no, I'm just saying, I'm making the point. When, when, when discussions, I won't say complaints, when discussions were had, yes, then women's history was included, but this is what you have to do all the time. And really, after 40 years of second wave feminism, and um, women's history and gender history becoming part of the academy and is integral to how you <coughs> study history now. Do you still have to say, what about the women? Mm -hmm. And are you going to have somebody talking about the women? And particularly, you're going to have a woman who's worked on this area talking about the women. Um, and then eventually we sort of saw compromises happening and uh, women being more included. And it was, it, it, personally, it was a fantastic year going around talking about all of that. But even as that was happening, there were gripes from the margins. The backlash was happening, as inevitably. That this was really uh, lip service being paid to the women. OK, let's commemorate the women now in 1916. And we've done that bit. Let's yeah, get I'm, back I'm, to normal history. Uh, the name uh, names, I'm thinking of Patsy McGarry. Patsy you know, McGarry, uh, Victoria uh, White. In particular, uh, said, you know, uh, that, yeah. that, that it was all exaggerated. But could I bring in the audience on yes. this, right? Uh, and more about going back to the history, right? I'd be interested, certainly from, uh, in particular from the non-academic members, the civilians in the audience. <laughs> you know, what did you learn about the, the role of women last year, if anything? I mean, yeah. Now, there's a radio mic here if you want to. <coughs> um, well, I was quite interested in what you were saying about the almond industry. Because, of course, at the moment in Ireland, we have 2.3 billion in the almond industry. It would be interesting to see how many women are working in it. And, of course, they're also selling the arms to the UK. 
to America, Saudi Arabia, all over the world. So I suppose what I got out of it was a total omission of the actual peace movement. And I'm going to bring up one woman, and that is Louis Bennett, yeah. who to my mind is one of the most relevant models for today, because of course she was a committed pacifist. And she not only was a committed pacifist, but she actually took on James Connolly when she founded, when she became president of the Irish Workers' Union and told him, no way is militarism going to come into my union. I don't want you here. And in the end, Connolly had to accept that. Now, I think the whole role of France achieved Skeffington was absolutely so that all that we had was war. Now, whether one believes in war or doesn't believe in war, but what, while a war is taking place now, I mean, an irony took place when I was watching the thing on the television and there was Michael D. Higgins, which commander-in-chief of the Irish Army, while at Shannon Airport, US military planes were going through Shannon off to do their dirty deeds. Yeah. No comment about this. So I'm just bringing this up, and this is what I feel that it is important now, mm. as we are in the middle of war, we are complicit with war, that we should consider those who were yes, against yes. war, whether it was a national struggle or whether it was an imperial struggle, against war per se, as an outdated mode of expression. Thank you. Anybody else want, want to come in on that? Could I just make a point, uh, Louis Bennett, um, the Irish Women Workers Union wouldn't agitate that the women who are working in the munitions factories weren't getting paid the same as their British sisters. And the Irish Women Workers Union wouldn't agitate on their behalf, so the British Women Workers Union came in and agitated on their behalf, and I suspect that was largely because of Louis Bennett's intervention. If, 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 I think as well, uh, when we broaden out the discussion about feminism rather than you know, the commemoration of 1916, um, we can see that pacifism is absolutely there, you know, right over the 100-year period. There is a very strong, you know, I suppose maybe in contrast to republicanism, which is another form of feminism. You have unionism as well. You know, you have all kinds, you have suffragism. You know, when we broaden out the discussion and, and actually look at the diversity of feminisms that existed in Ireland in that time, then we do get a very different uh, kind of interpretation of women's history than the kind of 1960 militaristic strand. So I think that's very important in the, in the mm. next two years, certainly, yeah. uh, to do that. Yeah. yeah, I just think on the, on, in the point of how were women remembered appropriately or, and so on uh, last year, you know, it's entirely unsurprising that they weren't uh, necessarily remembered uh, correctly to the full extent that they should be. Uh, that tension there, particularly between women's activism and the state itself, you know, always existed. Mm -hmm. For most common among activists, still exists. They didn't view the state as legitimate. <laughs> you know, the state was an, was was a, essentially an imposition. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 power had been stolen from mm -hmm. them as the revolutionaries. And uh, I was given a talk uh, in a North Galway village on common among, and uh, it was a fantastic event. But the local women were making the tea and sandwiches and serving, you know, and the local men were all sitting at drinking pints, and it was kind of interesting. And then the local <laughs> army officer uh, said a few words, and I was thinking, 
the National Army didn't admit women until the 1980s, mm -hmm. and he was paying tribute to, to people they resisted, you know, uh, keeping out and, and, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, are we asking too, are we being naive in thinking that the state will, will recognise these people appropriately? It's up for us to do it and not to wait for others to do it. But the know? thing is, I don't think we did it as well as we could mm. either. And I think there was resistance, not just from the state, but there was resistance from the academy, from the universities, um, and, and from those who were organising. And also there was a resistance from a certain element in society, like the Patsy McGarry's and, and Victoria White, and comments made, um, I know one shouldn't read below the line in the journal.ie <laughs> and things like that, but comments made of, yes, this is all very interesting, but this, uh, you know, this is a side issue. Let's get back to the real history. And, or the use of PC, it, it's very PC now that we have to include women, so let's do a women's thing and then let's move on and get back to the real history. There's also an interesting, Mary, uh, point here too, because when we talk about that Lena Maloney's and, and talking about not remembering people, to me, maybe the most extraordinary person in the entire revolution is uh, Ethna Coyle from, mm -hmm. from Donegal, a one-woman mm -hmm. train robber, uh, jailbreaker, <laughs> language teacher, and so on and so forth. Uh, lots of people are forgotten, mm -hmm. you know, to be honest. But, but the other point, if I make it, is... It's also awkward for the state to remember that uh, militant women didn't go away in mm -hmm. 1923 and mm -hmm. 1924. There are women, uh, you know, Martina Anderson, uh, Rose Dugdale, who endured uh, prison, exile, torture, uh, fought for their communities and so on. And they're still here today. Mm -hmm. And uh, in a state that wishes to marginalise those women, it, it, of course, it's awkward then to, t to champion well, the yes, women the, of Ireland. I, I don't women were agree always with awkward. any of that, actually, because was, I do feel that the commemoration didn't come out of the air. <coughs> it was a process which was constructed. It involved huge amounts of resources from the state. A committee was set up. The Irish Universities Association, which represents people like me, who have positions in universities, put a huge amount of resourcing into this. So I put this, and I say this as, a, as a, an academic myself, I put this squarely in the hands of the establishment academics, in particular the professional historians in this country. It is up to them and up to us to make sure that all this scholarship, all of what we're talking about, there is oodles of work, oodles of work done. I'm looking around the room at me. How many people have written about these questions? The, well, the line of this conference this weekend. I mean, <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So this was not. This was not a kind of a neutral thing that happened. You know, it, and as you know, I think you know, in a sense. You know, as I said, we need to be vigilant. In mm. future, we need to be vigilant about this. This is about the public role of history. You know, we are doing public history here, and it's very important that not just women, but many other questions get parity uh, within the next stages um, of the commemoration. Linda, what I, would you I like? To, sorry, uh, Linda, what would you like to see that that you don't think has been done sufficiently well? I mean, what? Like I, no, I'm saying that I think an awful lot of work has been done within scholarship. I just mean for the because we're entering into the beginning of a oh, long yeah. well, period. I can, I can give you one of, example of yeah. what we yeah. should have done. Uh, the first commemoration of the Rising happened in 1917, and it was the women who did it. Hmm. And we have not marked that now yet. This year. Uh, this yeah. year. Yeah. It was uh, Kathleen Lynn and Helena Maloney um, putting Republican flags in the outposts. Uh, when uh, on the 12th of May, when uh, on the, the anniversary of James Connolly's death, four of them uh, put a big poster outside, or a big, it wasn't a poster, it was a big long banner, outside Liberty Hall saying James Connolly murdered 12th of May 1916. It was the women who begin that process of 
commemoration and again constructing this idealized this idea of the Patriot dead and how we had to commemorate it and this was an important moment. They posted up proclamations again in 1917. There hasn't been any mention of that. There wasn't any, even a small commemoration of that, that first commemoration. But could well, I, so can I, so yeah. I come, in, come in here? Well, we're kind of commemorated now, actually, let me well, say, right? It's one of the discussions, one of the reasons why we're having this discussion here, right? And, and, and I'd like to, no, I, I'd like to, going back to your, your comment in the journal.ie, let's bring it back to the history here, mm -hmm. right? Because you painted a picture of, first of all, this specific thing of the, 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 the commemoration a year later, uh, the role of Captain Clark and other women in the, in the uh, prisoners' dependence funds, etc. Right. So, so they, they assume this more prominent position. Right. So my next question is, where did it all go wrong? Right. And I don't, I don't mean in the recent yes. academic arena. No, I'll throw this to, to everybody. Okay. I, I'm just looking for some specifics in terms of history as to when were women and how were women disempowered? How were they elbowed aside, or did they step back? <coughs> this is the question. Did they step back themselves of their own volition, or were they pushed aside? They were pushed aside. Well. well I think we can over-exaggerate how prominent women become during the revolution. That conservatism of the 1920s that we're all so well familiar with, it didn't come out of thin air. It was at the heart yeah, is, of the revolution yeah. all the way through. Many revolutionaries and many women were, were conservative women. Mm -hmm. And we talk about forgetting the, the people... Most women in, in, who are politically active are not actually members of any organisation. They are people who are housing people, put, uh, treating them with first aid, but sending there was a messages. Movement. There was a very yeah. active women's but movement. Take out the West of Ireland. From the late 19th century. The vast century. majority of women in the West of Ireland who are politically active, who risk their health and risk the danger to themselves and their families, are not members of any organisation. How do we know? Because we know. We have the statistics. We study it. We publish on it. There's about 48 women listed in Cumann Amman at the end of the War of Independence. There are hundreds of women that are active in Galway, in Roscommon, in Mayo. When the Bureau of Military History comes and makes a statement, it takes no statement from any woman in Roscommon, Mayo, Leitrim or Sligo. My point is that vast majority of women that were active, that risked their lives and should be remembered, went into a state that in many ways perhaps some of them were content in, that they shared that conservatism also. It's an uncomfortable reality. But not all women were feminists or were radicals. A lot of them were products of the conservative culture of their time. Well, I think I mean, there was. I think yeah. you have. A, there is a point there, yes. But I think there is also the point that the state that was construct was came into being in 1922 was so conservative. It, it became a theocracy in, in mm. essence, really. Uh, and that while you would have expected that the women, it wasn't going to be an egalitarian utopia that came into being in 1922 in any mm. case. Um, what, what happened and the chipping away of women's rights through legislation, through social policy, through the dominance of church thinking, uh, took women, it was much more than they expected to lose. That, uh, you know, I think even with the conservati conservatism of women in, in the rural areas, um, and I certainly know in Tralee there were um, there was feminist organisations and, and Old Cumann Amman continued to be a very active organisation. They were marching in the 1950s in their you know, very respectable hats and, and coats for women's rights, Old Cumann Amman. So they continued to be active in various parts of the country. But they were battling against a conservative state, a, a very conservative theocratic church that introduced this ide ideology of the idealised Irish woman, the domestic angel, um, 
And then if you look at the legislation from 22 to 37, 37 doesn't come out of, uh, of the uh, um, air either, and those articles positioning women within the home. It begins in the middle of the Civil War. With Just before you, I just want to throw in, uh, can we take a, 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 a comparative view of this, right? Isn't there a conservative backlash all over Europe, all over the world, right, in the 1920s, 1930s, right? It took a particular form here, mm -hmm. but it took oh, yeah. other forms like fascism yeah. and Nazism, yeah. other places, which were a lot less, you know, benign. You know, so I, I just think, shouldn't it be, uh, uh, shouldn't we take a broader, more comparative look at this, right? That what, what you're witnessing is a conservative backlash after the turmoil of the First World War, the various revolutions, national and social, that happened at that time. No, I, th I think in the Irish context, you know, quite frankly, the state which, uh, you know, adopted, it, they took the women out, as I like to say. They introduced specific pieces of legislation that not just prevented rights, but actually removed uh, rights in certain areas. So, for instance, uh, the 1935 Act, which I can never rem remember the name of, somebody, well, the Industries... Uh, Conditions of Employment Act. Yes, that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Juries Act. Um, marriage bar. No, but can, can, sorry, can, no, but you said, no, that's not the, that's not the, that's not the question I asked earlier, right? I'm 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 asking anyone on the panel, could they pinpoint uh, any incidents or a period immediately after 1970, 1980? This is when things are in a state of flux, Before. right? Because you're talking about when the state is settled. Yes. Mm. Things are in a state of flux when Before. when Sinn Fein, the volunteers, have been reorganised. You've painted a picture of women were very much involved in that. If they were so involved, how come they had so little influence later? Well, you can see what is happening with the rise of Sinn Féin. And uh, the women are vigilant, the political women are very vigilant about their uh, position within the executive in Sinn Féin. And they set up uh, uh, the League of Women Delegates to make sure that women are represented in Sinn Féin. And there is resistance. Um, some of the, the, the leadership in Dublin and, and some of the uh, commons in Dublin might have uh, allowed women and men to join, uh, and that was fine. But uh, as Connor said, and, and rightly so, most of the Sinn Féin commons down the country had, were, were sex segregated in lots of ways. Um, and so it's then you see that some of the conservatism that will fully manifest itself in the free state is already there. Um, Obviously, the War of Independence brings the women back into play because they are necessary uh, for a, a guerrilla warfare. It couldn't really have happened without what they did uh, as a backup. But, you know, Sinn Féin isn't the egalitarian political party. They, they refused to run. Uh, the women had to force uh, candidates, female candidates, and in the end, they ran two candidates um, because Kathleen Clark refused to, or not Kathleen Clark, Anna Cheese Skeffington refused to run, and they run Winifred Carney in East Belfast, where she mm. couldn't possibly win. Mm. Um, they run Countess Markovich, and don't really, it's the women who work to get Markovich elected, they don't throw too many, uh, um, they don't give too much help. With Markovich, they're more concerned with getting uh, the Sinn Féin men elected. Mm. So already in 1918, mm. in that general election, you can see the problems that are going to come into being subsequently. Now, the War of Independence kind of papers over a lot of those cracks because uh, obviously it, it supersedes any other mm -hmm. sort of political activism that's going on. But it's there um, and it will come, it will fire into being then in, in, in but the free state. You also see even the women's statements, there's about 210 odd, I think, of the 16, 1700 odd witness statements that are women. Yeah. And uh, most, I'd say about one in three of them is women talking about men that they mm -hmm. knew. Uh, the statements of women talking about what they did uh, are very few. 
you know, the, 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 they're being led to talk about the men with which they had, uh, they had fought alongside and so on. But one of the saddest things about the witness statement, I think, is I mentioned ethnic oil earlier. Uh, there's no witness statement for ethnic oil. There's a witness statement for Mrs. Bernard MacDonald or O'Donnell. Mm -hmm. You know, and it really struck me, mm -hmm. you know, that by 1956, or I think that was the year she wrote it, uh, ethnic oil had become Mrs. Bernard uh, O'Donnell in her name. And I often wondered, did she choose to, to have it written in that term or, or was, was that the way the state took it? You know, it's the diminution of the role of women that, that Mary has is, is, is remarkable by that I point. just think it's Blame, worth yeah. pointing out, though, that perhaps the most egalitarian advocates of women's place um, were all executed in 1916 mm -hmm. and the vacuum mm -hmm. that was yeah. created. I mean, we don't really associate Pierce with progressive thinking, no. but actually he's very progressive when it comes to equality with women. And so the vacuum that's created after the death of those thinkers is filled by people who don't really think about women's mm -hmm. rights particularly well at all. And I think that's, that has to be a contributory factor in that kind of radicalism which is eradicated at that stage. There's only 16 of them executed, though. But they're very powerful. Tommy, they're I very just think powerful. as well, of, again, putting this in a wider context, so the, the witness statements, they might be few and far between, but the ones that are there are really, really incredibly interesting. So they do range from, from women who had a lot of agency, particularly in Cork, I have to say. A lot of the Cork women's witness statements, you know, they're swimming in the river at night, they're hiding stuff, they're avoiding being molested. This is, you know, the, the fear, I suppose, the point is, in that period, there was a great fear, um, you know, of, of, of being attacked. There was violence against women. We know that. Mm -hmm. um, we know that women's bodies were heavily policed by both sides mm -hmm. um, through the, the huge numbers of uh, head shavings that happened. They are everywhere in the witness statements. There's an awful lot of evidence in the witness statements as and in to what happened. newspaper reports. It, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I suppose we underestimate the, 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 the danger and, and the, the oppression hour. and the policing of women in that period mm. as perhaps a factor in pushing them back as well. I just want to I, make no, I want to go, I want to go to the honest Mary, right? Get in here quick, guys, you know, yes. get a word in. Uh, no, sorry, sorry, I, you, you've spoken already. Anyone else here? No, I'm not yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry, just down, down here. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah you have to wait. We do, we'll in a second, okay? Yes. Uh, two points, really. Um, I'm a bit vague about the details, but I think it was even before the foundation of the state that Michael Collins took in, uh, stepped in and took over the funds raised yeah, by Kathleen yeah. Clark it and is, yeah. the women in the uh, Defendants Association. And it was a very conscious part of him building mm. his own organisation. But I do think that, uh, you know, to maybe revisit a little bit of what we've been talking about earlier, uh, is that... One of the uh, invisibilities, if you like, of being working class women to a great extent, and there is a danger that we will focus on a lot of the women who, simply because there are records there, which is fine for people who are academics, but I, I mean, one of the amazing things I thought last year was the, lo the local history that came forward and people celebrating, and it mightn't be something necessarily terribly nuanced, or, but it was about people celebrating their own environment involvement in, uh, and their, rather their relatives' involvement in setting up a state. But I think you need to take the witness statements with a large mm -hmm. grain of salt because one of the things that explains to some extent the absence of women mm -hmm. is that those women who were ideologically committed took a decision not to contribute yeah, 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 a statement. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, they, they removed themselves from the process because of what they felt yeah, about the state. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's important. Can, can I just add to that? I think also uh, a lot of women weren't asked and a lot yeah. of and, and, and yeah. women's yeah. voices weren't valued yeah. their contributions weren't valued 
So I'm not surprised that yeah. there were so few women asked. Um, mm. Like only Elizabeth Ann O'Brien in, in Kerry was uh, in the Tralee mm. coming on, which were very active mm. during the lead up to the rising was asked. And, and she's, it's a very brief witness statement. Yeah. yeah. And they are very brief, so many of yeah, them, yeah. yeah. Uh, just a point of information. Um, I think I'm not quite sure who it was, um, so pardon me. Um, um, you were talking. What? Oh, I'm not. Oh, I'm so used to having my own head, Mike. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you were talking about the army and women in the army, uh, I'm not sure quite who that was. Oh, sorry, I didn't catch your name. Connor. Oh, sorry. Apologies for that, because I came in late. Um, but Mary, you may answer this one for me with the brain injury. I just. But was uh, Bridget Lyons Thornton not the first officer in the rank who was put that tour, in the yeah. army? In so the she was actually the first woman and the Irish army yeah. actually acknowledged her way before the 80s. Yeah. Just, mm -hmm. you know, as a point of information. She was, yeah. She was, she was the first the lieutenant tour. in the army, yeah. in fact. So it was just, I'm sorry, I'm just throwing that in. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I, I have to do my job. I have to do my job. Sorry. Judge, can I just say that the point you made there about Collins taking over the fund? That's the kind of thing, I, the question I was asking. Like, that, that is, is, is a very specific yeah. example of women being taken out. You know, but also, um, that famous tour that Republican women make to, to America, yeah. I think, are they all relatives of men who died? Or yeah. are there women no, no. fighters? Oh, uh, Margaret Pierce goes to them. Margaret Skinner is there. Oh, Margaret Skinner goes, yeah. 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 And actually, that's another thing. She writes, doing my bit for Ireland in, 19, in 1917. Mm. Yeah. And again, is there any, um, mm. I don't think there's any plans to talk oh. about that. And that's a very interesting, it's one of the first eyewitness accounts of somebody who participated oh. in the rising. Obviously, it's, it's a polemic and it's very subjective and all that sort of thing. And you, and you have to, to read it in that way. But it is one of the first eyewitness mm. accounts of a woman. Mm. Um, and she writes it while she's on that tour in America. Mm. Um, and uh, publishes it, uh, and it, it, it's never, you know, it, it really had yeah. some impact. It, it, it's available online. Yeah, now. even if anyone has it, a 200 can, euro first edition copy, you can download it on archive.org. There is more information on that. Yeah. Is there anyone else want to come in? Because uh, I'm just looking at the time here, guys, so we don't be like a sing song here, everyone want to come in at the end. Just, and then I'll go to you, Lindsay, after that. Oh, Lindsay first, okay. No, use, use the mic there. This, this is being recorded, by the way. This, this will be a, a podcast on our website. So, One thing that's you know. really interesting in Skinner is the tone of that. Yes. It's written very early, yeah. and it's very unapologetic, and it's really, really interesting that it, what mm -hmm. comes later and what's published later, how different the tone is mm -hmm. of anybody who writes down their memoirs in the 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. particularly women, because yeah. they're already aware of how hostile that environment yes. is. I think Linda put her finger on it, as she so often does, and that is the problem with commemoration. There's a real contradiction at the heart of the very endeavor for those of us that are interested in power and how it's played out. And that is there's no interest in the way the state commemorates and in investigating that power. And until there is, then we're never going to make sense of the way in which women are and aren't included. Because there's a definite sense of they've got their chapter. Okay, so we have a chapter on them now, so it's done. What, what's required is a restructuring of Irish history, of a rewriting of Irish history. And I remember when I read Senia Peseta's book, I thought, finally, no academic can write about this now without taking into consideration what Senia's done, because she's totally changed the narrative. 
it has been utterly ignored. Yeah. 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 Lucy McDermott's work is another. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. also, I, I think it's very important. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I think it's very important to know as well that there is current discussions at government level about commemorating franchise in 2018. I have heard rumours about this. I don't know who is involved. If anyone is here, please let us know. Because those of us who have been writing about this for 20, 30, 40 no. years, um, you know, we, we actually, we need, we need to know about this. We need to be involved in it. And, you know, and, and involved in a critical way, I think. It's very, very important. Yeah. But I obviously agree, Lindsay, with yeah. what uh, A question for anybody on the panel. Um, given the representation of the People Act of 1918 that gave women the first chance to vote. Mm -hmm. And given the results of the 1918 election when Sinn Féin wiped the floor with the Irish Parliamentary Party, how would the panel assess what was the seminal moment in, in women's history, the first chance you got to go to the ballot and exercise a vote? How much was that done on the emotion of 1916? as opposed to pragmatic political decision-making on the fact that post-war, there still hadn't been a settlement. We still didn't know what was to become of Ireland in December 1918. So the very first opportunity you had to go to the ballot box, how much of that was emotional, how much of that was pragmatic politics? Well, no, I, I think it was very rational. Yeah, yeah it, was it was very, very rational. rational. Uh, yeah. There, there was... Uh, <laughs> Coming to mind, were very organised. <laughs> they um, they issued, they made speeches, they With issued candidates. pamphlets, they got women, they got yeah, the women's did. vote out. But there was also, I think, a sense of a pragmatic sense of, um, and and I think it's Jenny Wise Power who says it, um, of getting the Irish Parliamentary Party not for nothing for 1916, but for 1912. They had very long memories. Uh, when the Third Home Rule Bill was going through the House of Commons, the, the Irish feminists had campaigned avidly to have suffrage included in the Third Home Rule Bill. And the Irish Parliamentary Party had refused. Uh, on, on various bases, it might have stopped it going through, and I think quite a number of them were anti-suffrage anyway. Um, so they, you know, there was a little bit of revenge being taken as well. But Common Amon were utterly organized. They got the vote out. They campaigned for Sinn Féin candidates, male and, well, the two women, and female all over the country. Um, they issued their pamphlet, the, the, the duty of Irish women, was it? Yeah, the duty of Irish women, that they were to use the weapon that's now being put into their hands, the vote. Uh, and they were to vote for SF, uh, Sinn Féin, and they were to go out there and do their duty as Irish women uh, in response to the proclamation which had given them, uh, which promised them equality in the new state that Sinn Féin then was going to, to uh, bring about. Uh, so f for them, it's a very pragmatic Mm. And I would imagine, yes, of course, there's emotional, uh, emotion about it as well. They had been through a uh, pretty traumatic experience in the Rising. But they are pragmatic and they're practical and they're organised. And they do it on the ground. There's also a, 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 a tone in the Conservative media coverage of the, uh, the, the 1918 election here. Well, Galway as well, actually, the Contribune and elsewhere. That essentially... The victory of Sinn Féin, that's what you'll get mm -hmm. if you give particularly working class men, but also women, a vote. Mm. You get this irrational mm. result. 
you know, that this is essentially that the franchise has been given by Britain. This is a British measure, mm. and look what's happened now. You know, that these, uh, and you see the, the, the level, the, the nature of insult in the papers at the time is fantastic. Uh, suckling pigs, they call the, the, the young Sinn Feiners here in, uh, in Ballinasloe. Uh, you have this constant barrage of these men who the Land League had given a touch to in the past. And here they are now with a franchise voting for, uh, for, for these Sinn Feiners, you know, these, uh, these uh, working class people who uh, essentially have gotten above their station in 1918. And uh, we need to really kind of keep them back down again, mm -hmm. you know. And, mm -hmm. uh, there's no, are there editorials praising the extension of the franchise to women? I haven't seen any, but it, 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 it's, it's definitely destabilising for a mm -hmm. conservative coterie. Mm -hmm. That is remarkably I think the large. Ones who get a bit more emotional. Yeah, more than exactly. Yeah. <laughs> John. John. Well, just briefly, I suppose one should remember also that the women who got the vote were over 30. Yeah. Mm. So it's not. Uh, they were mature. Yeah, mature. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but. Oh, no, but this, uh, this is the. This is what happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Just use use the mic there when you're, you're just. Yeah. 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 So. I know you were going back to speakers. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> just just. We'll, no. we'll indulge you there. The vote. The vote was given to women over thirty and men over twenty-one because mm -hmm. giving it to women over thirty, that constituted forty-three percent of the demographic. Mm -hmm. If they had given it to women over the age of 21, the same as men, women would have had the majority of the demographic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of the losses of the men in the First well, World War, right, it was yeah, women yeah, over 30 yeah. that kept they them under 40. They delayed giving it to them in 1921, didn't they, at the treaty, yeah. yeah. Well, I suppose, uh, you know, when you take, take it that only about three women have been elected to the doll that I know of from Galway West. You know, yeah. and the last, this, this time, there was two women. But really, if uh, South Mayo hadn't been part of Galway West, we would still have only one woman. woman. <laughs> and before these two women, we just had Mara Gagan Quinn. I don't think there was, I'm not sure if there was anyone before that. I'm sure there's somebody here who would know if there was or not. But like, women don't vote for women. And that's the story. Like, I, I mean, uh, and then, really... It's candidates as well, though. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. well, that's... Yeah, they do. Women. But they are on the ticket. They have always been on the ticket for a long time. But, uh, you well, know, actually, I mean... research has shown that if once women get on the ticket, they have more get of a more chance of uh, getting elected yeah. uh, in lots of ways. So, uh, and the gender quotas... Well, if you, go, if you went down to, to Merview United or are down to Galway United and we're standing at the side of the pitch on a regular basis, you're guaranteed about four or five hundred votes. That means you have a, have a, have a seat in the city council. Yeah. Now, you know, that's how people get votes, is networking. You don't get votes by going down and uh, yeah. Yeah. being a member of the Vincent de Paul and giving out something to the door. You don't get votes that way. You see, people don't, when they when they talk about women uh, getting the votes, you have to be in places where there's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even atheists go out in front of the church on a Sunday where there's a big mass, because they know where there's, there's the people are, so that's where you get your votes. You won't get your, true. <laughs> you won't get your votes in, in the local chemist shop. We want, men, we want men to vote for women as well, though, so yeah. it's not just yeah. women. Now, is there anyone else from the audience who wants to come in on, on anything that we've discussed up to this point? 
Yeah, yeah just <laughs> quickly, <laughs> very briefly. Yes, it's hard to. No, wait, wait, just wait, you can get the, the light there so you can hear you. Oh, there you go. I think that we've got to realise the importance and the terror and absolutely frightened of the Russian Revolution and of Bolsheviks. And this would have made a big thing, is that the priests would have been out making bloody sure that no woman put her head up because she would just be labelled a Bolshevik. Yeah, I think that's, yeah. that's a fair point. Could I just move, I, I, I'm looking at the time here, we're going to have to wrap up shortly. Um, can I just say Did one you, point? Okay, Karen, go on. Uh, we, we kind of <coughs> might slightly overlook in the tenor of the conversation. For an awful lot of women, the revolution was an amazingly fantastic experience. And the energy and the, and the enthusiasm, mm. particularly, there is a huge social dimension in the earlier period to the revolution and Cayleys and, and, and music and, and song and so on. They had this great energy and enthusiasm. Anna Fahey's witness statement said uh, famously, uh, who fought in the four courts, uh, we needed no cocktails uh, to mm -hmm. have a good time, mm -hmm. you know, that... Uh, and uh, of course, that pallors then into the 20s, and you see mm -hmm. a totally different phenomenon. But uh, of course, Vivid Faces has brought that out quite a lot. But it is a period of excitement and, and energy, and there is a, a sexual frisson to it, I think, as well. Well, I mean, it, loved it. it, it gave, it gave uh, young men and women a chance to meet. I mean, it, yeah. the various political clubs mm -hmm. and so on, right? I know you said some of these. Uh, the Sinn Féin coming oh, that's segregated. The, that's later, but the Gaelic yeah. League is a fantastic, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, a fantastic yeah. organisation where, and I, I read, a, um, I was doing a bit of research on the coming Man and Kerry and I read a, a lovely description in the local newspaper in 1914, I think, or no, 15, a uh, picnic out to Castle Gregory um, of the Gaelic Leaguers and the coming Man and um, they, all the young men and women went out together and they sang Republican songs and then they had an Aaron Goodbra um, poster and, and they sang uh, all sorts of things on, on top of, I think they climbed Mount Brandon together and quite a number of those probably ended up marrying each other and mm. things. You know, it was a very much a social occasion as well mm. and you're right, before the, up to the rising mm. I would say and pro probably not so much afterwards. But the war uh, yeah. But up to the rising was very much yeah. part of yeah. that, creating those social networks yeah. um, and um, <coughs> it, it's, it's a freedom that that generation yeah. of young women and women have that perhaps their parents didn't have. And it evolves and changes together. very quickly. It, revolution speeds up time, I think. Yeah. You notice, like, if you like Margaret uh, Roderick uh, Nicholson, I think it's her, or, I could be slightly wrong in her correct name there, from Galway. In 1914, 15, 16, she's organizing fesh uh, kjols and yeah. dances mm. here in the town. Mm. And you kind of look at the ad and think, I wouldn't mind going to that. You know, this, is, this sounds great. By 1920, she's going to Baker's Hotel in Air Square. She's fraternising with soldiers. She's bringing them down two streets away here, uh, luring them to a honey trap, I suppose, yeah. is the term they'd use now, where the soldiers are stripped of their weapons. Um, to, to a young lady, obviously, at any period, I mean, the, the squalor to have to go through that, she would have had developed a name in the town for doing that. I mean, the humiliation and everything else involved and in doing it. And her witness statement, she was pulled into yeah. the streets and uh, very violently yeah. mm. and had her head shaved publicly in the yes. streets. I read that witness statement. So, uh, that, so it wasn't just a kind of a, you know, it was a very, very violent mm. period. And I keep, <laughs> we really need to remember that, I think, going into the next phase of the commemoration. One of the things we have to look at is the impact. There's a danger of looking at all of these events through the militaristic uh, interpretation. Yeah. This was, was a war about men. We haven't at all looked at gender-based violence mm -hmm. at all in this period. There's well, I, I, I think once and a huge amount of work yeah. to be done is the fact that it is a guerrilla warfare. Uh, the the yeah. men can go on the run, and yeah, the exactly. violence that is taken out on the communities mm. is is, is impacted yeah. on yeah. the women and children mostly yeah. Yeah. when they're coming out of mass. 
uh, the knightly <coughs> rage in the houses, it's, yeah. it's the mothers and the daughters and yeah. the sisters yeah. uh, that are being pulled out of bed and that are being um, um, interrogated as to where, ever, where, where the, the son of the house yeah. is or whoever they're looking for. And those women couldn't leave mm. those communities. <laughs> they were there on the front line. And I think we, we, we haven't really acknowledged that in any of our histories. Yeah. Um, and that violence, not just sexual violence, but the actual violence Absolutely. of war. The yeah. trauma. And also the trauma. Killed, for instance. Um, yeah. Like they're, um, I, I'm looking into uh, an incident that happened in Kerry uh, where three young men were shot um, and the local women had to retrieve their bodies. And, and it was a very traumatic way they had to do it. They, the bodies were taken to Tralee, um, Bridewell and they were put up on, uh, in the turf shed and they were naked and they had to get the bodies back to Listole and, and there was a huge, uh, it almost like it was going to explode. And it was these young women with the, the naked mm. bodies of these men they knew, uh, their neighbours. Think about the trauma that, that, mm. that they endured doing that sort of thing. And they didn't speak about it afterwards. But yeah. I, I think this speaks to how how are we going to commemorate the different yes. roles of women going yeah. in the next yeah. few yes. years? Because yeah. we can all we all own 1916. It's a it's yeah. a foundational moment, but we're looking now at the War yes. of Independence and the Civil War, yeah. and we're talking about especially we're talking about depending you know what political party is in power. Yeah. We're talking about who end up on one side and who end up on the yeah. other, and I think that we have. If we are in danger of losing particular histories now, we're really in danger of losing them in the future. And I think Linda's absolutely right. We have to be vigilant about how we remember, who is remembered, and why we're remembering. And I suppose that's my interest in the munitions women as well, mm -hmm. thinking there's a double blind spot there, one about the, the role of Ireland in the war effort and two women's history. And you can see them layered upon each other and it just they just become invisible. Just on the, on the munitions women, um, um, uh, Elaine, did they all go back home after the war? Well, what's shocking about the munitions women is we have absolutely no idea what happened to them. Um, apart from the fact that women disappear from history because they marry and their names change and they're really hard to trace, the National Museum of Ireland has one photograph and one letter and one war service badge, all from the same woman, Florence Lee, who served in the Dublin dockyards. Reproduced the History Ireland, by the way. Right? And so, Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> by Siobhan Pierce. But that is the only record, that's the only record that the state actually owns. And Brenda Malone, who's a curator there, said in every kind of road show that they do, she hopes that something will come up and it has never come up. So that in itself is a whole question about why that history has not been kept, has been not been remembered, has not surfaced. So we don't know is the answer to that. Now that, that brings me on to the, my final point here, which is I, I, I leave the War of Independence Civil War out of it. Let's just look next year, right? Because next year is the century of 1918. So what should we, what should we be concentrating on? Sinn Féin's victory, suffrage. votes for women, suffrage. or the end of the First World suffrage. War, a rather minor event you know, that we were involved in mm -hmm. at the time, mm -hmm. uh, all together, presumably. Mm -hmm. Now, what, what, are, what would the panel think? What do they think our prospects are, given what's gone on last year? Well, I think suffrage is the big one. Mm -hmm. I think suffrage yeah. brings together lots of different elements. I think that if you use the lens of suffrage, you can think about the mobility of war, the social position mm -hmm. of women, uh, revolution, all of those different things, the changing demographics, all of the things that we've talked about yeah. tonight. Um, and I think that if you look at suffrage, um, then we can, we can kind of re sort of construct a past in, in its myriad forms that perhaps we haven't been doing so far. I, I think just actually on commemoration, obviously suffrage should be commemorated. Will it be commemorated effectively is, is the question, obviously. Uh, to take it slightly a different way, what I would like to see 
is a continuation of communities outside of the state exploring and having awkward debates and questions and answer sessions and, and exploring it through profoundly parochial and local senses of how these great events have affected their communities because it has produced amazing interest, amazing archives, amazing scholarship and uh, the great heroes I think are the primary school teachers have done great, great work that we don't think that commemoration is the state's business. It is their business, but it is the community's business and it is family's businesses that, you know, that, that we over-align. Okay. Yeah. Free question. All right. Yes, yes, okay. yes. yes. So, get in so quick. Two, yes. Thanks very much. Yeah, I think that question of um, kind of commemoration and sustaining commemoration and remembrance going forward is really an important one. But I'm also interested in the idea of kind of historical precedents around uh, women's activism and women's involvement in, 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 uh, in what we're talking about now. Um, because a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, you know, I, I come from a, a background, I study 17th century women. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, how can we look at uh, women's involvement and wi women's activism previously and, and prior to this, um, and how can that maybe inform our opinions and mm -hmm. our, um, our, our thoughts on how we approach what was new or what was unique about women's involvement in, in this time period? Linda, if you want to come in quickly. I'll let Linda back in quickly. I fully agree, <laughs> and it in part, if not fully, answers the question that was asked. I think uh, 2018 is about suffrage, but it is, it's our commemoration. It's about the women's movement. It's about, it's about Which didn't, didn't just start in 2018. Honouring the feminists yeah. who are part of the revolutionary period mm -hmm. we're talking about here. And yeah. it's part of that, what you're talking about, exactly, scrutinising, you know, the, putting in the hidden mm. histories, the memories that have been lost, not just about trauma, hopefully the good things mm. um, too as well. And I think that's exactly, exactly what um, 2018 yeah, should be about. Just very quickly, yeah, I, I agree think, with yeah, you. we can use yeah. 2018 to do a full exploration, not just of women getting the vote, but of all female activism from the previous 150 yeah. to 1798, yeah. from Mary Wollstonecraft, from wherever we want to start. Uh, because that getting the vote is one culmination, it's not the end obviously getting the vote was just another point along yep. the way but it allows us that opportunity to explore that. Just a point of information I think you'll all be uh, delighted to know that the Houses of the Oireachtas are actually extremely interested in commemorating women's suffrage and they have put in money in collaboration with their Royal Irish Academy to hold a big commemoration next year and it isn't actually only about women's suffrage but also um, the increase in democracy in Ireland in terms of increasing the vote for men as well as women because only about less than two-thirds of men had the vote up to 1918. So it's a full exploration of suffrage in its extreme panoply but also commemoration of the centenary of women's suffrage. So I hope you'll actually participate in that. <laughs> yeah, I just, like, I don't really like the idea of just kind of confining things into a certain, like, okay, next year we do this. And it's, because it's all, it's all knock on, it's all overrelated. I mean, the other thing about 1918, the conscription crisis might be the most successful civil disobedience mm -hmm. movement, not just in Irish history, but maybe in the 20th century in, in Europe. It's one of them. It's Ireland's unique in, in World War I for defeating conscription among continental European combatants. Uh, and they do through by entirely peaceful means in a very innovative way. And we talk about the uh, different 
you know, I'm, I love, I'm really interested in coming on, I don't work on it, I love women with guns, but I also like women without guns. And, and, uh, and this, uh, this, <laughs> love the way ladies, no, but, uh, but the idea of different forms of, 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 of activism, and it can also just, it doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, it can be different forms of civil disobedience too. And I think that the whole idea is that all this stuff is, is related and it's interconnected and it's, and uh, mm -hmm. anyway, that's about it. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think we're, I'm, going, I'm just looking, I'm getting the, uh, the, the, the maneuver there from Sarah Ann, so I'm gonna have to wrap things up. Um, just, <laughs> can I just, really? a, a final few words on the question of commemoration, right? Um, I just wanted to, to emphasize something that Connor said. In a way, you know, I think you can worry too much about what the government and official, you know, official are going to do about these things. I, th I think the main thing to come out of last year's commemorations is this thing of, of on the ground, what, what happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way, the people took over the commemoration, mm -hmm. organizations, the length, breadth of the country, right? And that's why it was such a success. If it had been left to official circles, the whole thing would have been a disaster. Their, their initial steps were rather faltering, to say mm -hmm. the least. We, we won't go into all of that again. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I look forward to, to more discussions like this next year and all of these issues. Uh, just finally want to say that our next uh, History Iron Head School will be in Cork, in Cove. Uh, we will be uh, marking the another, another centenary. God, there's, there's so many of them. Thank God. Um, the arrival of the US Navy in Cork, Don Borgonovo will be on the panel, amongst others. So if you're in the Cove area, uh, that's, uh, I think it's Thursday, the 4th of May. You're, you're all very welcome. But we do hope you'll be back here in our favourite venue, uh, the Mechanics Institute, uh, sometime soon. So thank you, thank you very much. Can I just very quickly thank the panel, Elaine Sisson, uh, Conor McNamara, uh, Mary McAuliffe, and uh, Linda Connolly. Uh, I'll just be the cheeky boy at the back of the class for the moment, uh, Tommy, if you don't mind. Uh, just uh, that several of your panel, people who can't wait until 1980 or 2018, uh, will have an opportunity to resume this kind of debate in a couple of weeks' time, in the 5th and 6th of May. Two of the panellists are appearing in, um, at a conference in Roscommon, um, Mary, McAuliffe and, and Connor. And um, so uh, that's... Uh, a conference entitled 1917 Centenary Reflections, which also featured a number of other people like Margaret Ward, who were mentioned in the course of the uh, discussion this evening. Uh, so if you're anywhere within 100 miles of Roscommon on the 5th and 6th of May, uh, you'll be very welcome. Sorry, I should have mentioned, by I the way... I should in say my the Women's History Conference the is history still conference running tomorrow. So. Yes, <laughs> and I should have been a spoiler alert, but Elaine and Connor will be, will be giving papers. Will, they will, they will go into great, much greater detail on some of the things that we're saying here. Uh, this evening. So I hope to see you there as well tomorrow. Thank you very much. Thank you.